All right, Revelation 3. So this is the last of these seven introductory messages. Today we're going to look at the letter to Laodicea. A few things you need to know about that city to understand what Jesus says to the church. It was a really rich city. They were known for their banking industry. They had a major banking industry. They were on the, the crossroads of a couple of major trade routes. That's why they were the city was built around that crossroads. Very prosperous. Um, also, they, uh, they were known for this black wool that they cultivated from some careful breeding for years. And people sought out that black wool. It's one of the things that made them rich. They also had a medical school. And one of the things that medical school... Uh, provided and made was ointment that people put on their eyes if they had an eye problem. Achilles heel for the city, no water source, no water supply. It was put where it was put, not because of its proximity to natural resources, but because of these trade routes. And so they had to pipe water in from about six miles away from a spring. So their water quality was pretty poor overall. And those four things all come to come into play as we read what Jesus says to this letter. And to be in just tone, the letter's pretty tough. I would say it's the toughest of all of the seven uh, in terms of Jesus' tone. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we've uh, said before there's a common template. All these letters follow. This is similar. There's no encouragement. We just read that. He doesn't find anything good to say about this church. It's all correction and rebuke. As in all the letters, Jesus identifies himself using descriptive words that are meaningful to the situation at hand. And what I hear Jesus saying is, I have a right to judge you, and the judgments I'm making are true. I'm the faithful and true witness. What I'm about to say is reliable. It's trustworthy. He says, I'm the, the ruler of creation. I have this posture, this position to be able to judge you, and I'm the amen. When we hear that word, a lot of times we think goodbye. We tack it at the end of our prayers. It's a strong affirmation. So in John, especially, you see it used this way. When Jesus is going to say something and he wants everybody to pay attention, he says, amen, amen. Our Bible translates it truly, truly. So you have Jesus saying, I'm the amen. I'm the truly, truly. You, you need to conform to what I'm saying to you, and you need to pay attention to what's about to come out of my mouth. And what comes out of his mouth is all correction. It is from a place of love. He says that clearly, but it's all correction. Two major issues in the Laodicean church. One, they are neither hot nor cold. They're lukewarm. Now you may, depending on your background, you may have heard that idea tied to your spiritual fervor. That's a youth group message 
Are you hot? Are you cold? Or are you somewhere in the middle, lukewarm? Not about your spiritual passion. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about usefulness. There was a town a few miles north of Laodicea called Heropolis, and they had a, a warm spring. And people would go there, and they would bathe in that hot water, and it would make them feel better. And a few miles south, there was a town called Colossae, and they had a spring, and it was cool, and it was refreshing. And Jesus is saying, either one of those, like hot water's great for physical healing, and cold water's great if you're really thirsty. Y'all are neither one. You're lukewarm. You're good for nothing. And so I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Strong word, vulgar word. That's what Jesus says about them. Because you're useless. It's not about your spiritual passion level. It's about your fruitfulness. And they're not fruitful. And so Jesus says he's going to spit them out of his mouth. And then the second issue, which is actually the fundamental issue, it's the foundational issue. You say you're rich. You've acquired wealth and you don't need anything. But in reality... Wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. And those last three words would have hit them in their points of pride. Poor, even though they have this massive banking industry and are very prosperous as a people. Naked, although they're known for producing this black wool that everybody wants. And blind, even though they produce this ointment that people come around from around the area to buy to put on their eyes so they can see. They're misreading their spiritual situation. They're misjudging, misunderstanding, whatever words you want to use. Their perspective on their spiritual condition, very different from Jesus's. They say, we're rich, we don't need anything. And he's saying, "You you need a lot. You need a lot of things. There's a lot of things that you need in that I'm the only one who can provide them. And he tells them, here's what you need to do. You need to buy this gold from me that's refined in the fire. All these are just metaphors. It's all saying you need to recognize I'm the source of life for you, that you have need and I'm the only one that can provide it. You need to get these white clothes that are acts of righteousness. You need to get this salve that only I can provide so that you can see with the eyes of your heart. Again, don't press those things too much. What exactly is he's talking about? It's this picture. Again, he's looking at these things that they're taking pride in and he's saying that's not it. You're thinking because you have all of these things materially that you're okay, you're not okay. You need to be coming to me. You have real need, and you need to acknowledge that and recognize that. You're not rich. You're not rich at all. You're wretched, and you're pitiful, and you're poor, and you're blind, and you're naked. And then he calls them to repentance. And again, you can hear he's coming from a place of love. Those whom I love, he loves them. I rebuke. I tell them that they're wrong. And I discipline, I show them what the right way is. Rebuke is, I I tell you where you're wrong. You're neither hot nor cold. I tell you where you're wrong. You think you're rich. You're not. You're You're wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. And then he disciplines them. Here's what you need to do. You need to buy gold from me. You need to get these white clothes from me. You need to get this salve from me. Parents, side note, it's a great little parenting strategy there, right? Rebuke and discipline. Discipline can also mean flog. Don't do that. But rebuke, tell them where they're wrong, and then discipline. Show them what the right way is. You do that. And Jesus says, here's what I'm doing. This is, I'm doing this because I love you. So I need you to repent. We think of repentance. We think of changing direction. Super helpful. I think in this case, what needs to happen is they need to move from disagreeing to agreeing with God. 
They need to shift their perspective. They need to recognize the amen is talking and that he's faithful and true. And they need to align their sense of who they are with his judgments about who they are. And be zealous or earnest, your Bible may say, about that. And then there's this picture, which to me is incredible. When I think about King Jesus, we just sang about knocking on the door. It's amazing to me. He's the king. He can go wherever he wants. He says, I, I, I'm here and I, I stand at the door and I knock. And you may have heard that in an evangelistic sense and for sure, but recognize he's talking to the church here. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking and he's talking to the church. I think at this point he's gone from kind of the corporate church to the individuals within the church because he says, I'll come in. Any of y'all, any of y'all will open the door. I'll come in. There's a famous painting, William Holman Hunt. Um, uh, it's called The Light of the World. It's based on this verse in the, in the picture the door, there's no, there's no handle on the outside. Jesus is knocking. There's no handle on the outside. He has to be let in. And again, just the humility of King Jesus knocking on the door of the heart of someone who he's already redeemed. And what does that even mean for him to be on the outside of that? that the fact that that can happen and, and us not even realize it. And again, the humility, he doesn't just walk away. He doesn't kick the door down. He's waiting to be invited back. And when they offer theirs relationship to eat with you, that's a sign of friendship and acceptance. That's what he wants. Again, there's a, there's a, the tone to the letter is, I do think it's, it's harsh. But it's coming from a place of love. He's trying to wake them up. He doesn't want to spit them out of his mouth. But that's the road that they're on. And then the promise he makes, and I kind of want to go, come on. It's the last thing. The last thing they need to hear is, hey, you can rule and reign. They got plenty of things they already feel great about, about themselves. But that's what he says. If you overcome, if you're victorious, here's the reward. You'll get to sit on my throne with me. Revelation 22, 4 says, we'll reign with him forever and ever, whatever that means. And he's offering that to these Laodiceans. You see the grace and the mercy of God. They're not disqualified. This thing that they probably... They probably see themselves in a lot of ways as already ruling and reigning. And he's saying, no, you're not. But if you repent, you align yourself with me, recognize your need for me, that'll be the end result. Probably pretty easy for you to put yourself in that church context, I would think. Uh, you know, we want to hear what the Spirit says to us through this letter written just to one church, Laodicea, but applicable to all churches, including us. So what would the Holy Spirit say to us? Sometimes when we read this letter, it makes people, it kind of throws people off kilter, off balance a little bit because it can sound like, whoa, especially if you're thinking hot and cold and lukewarm is your spiritual temperature. You're trying to figure out what does hot mean? Does that, hands up, like what am I supposed to do to show that I'm hot? I don't want to be vomited out of Jesus' mouth for sure. And it can create uneasiness, unsettledness in us. That's not the point. Remember, Jesus says, those whom I love, he's approaching them from a place of relationship and desire for greater relationship. That's what he wants. And again, it has nothing to do with your spiritual passion level. It's, he's talking to them about their first, the fact that they've lost their sense of dependence upon him. And then second, the result of that loss is a loss of fruitfulness or usefulness. John 15, y'all remember this. Last night of Jesus' life. I think the same point, but a different metaphor that may help, with, may help you feel a little bit better. And not, I want you to feel secure. How about that? 
your feet a little bit more firmly planted. I'm the true vine. My father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you don't remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. There'll be a slide up there. Uh, Some parallels that I see, uh, maybe you do as well, between these two passages that I think are communicating the same basic reality. Relationship with Jesus is foundational and primary, and what flows out of that relationship is fruitfulness or usefulness to him. So a lack of fruitfulness or a lack of usefulness can indicate a break in relationship. But the relationship is primary or foundational. The fruitfulness flows from it. So when Jesus says you're lukewarm, what I hear him saying is you're like a branch that doesn't have any fruit. When he says, I wish that you were hot or cold, what I hear him saying is, you'll bear fruit. When I hear him saying, I rebuke and I discipline, that to me is the father pruning or throwing branches. Excuse me, those I rebuke or discipline is is pruning. When he talks about spitting out of his mouth, that to me is being cut off or being thrown into a fire. When he says, buy all this stuff from me, the gold and the clothes and the Salve, what I hear him saying is remain in me. When he says, you're saying you're rich, you don't need anything, what I hear him saying is you're not remaining in me. To me, again, it's a different metaphor, but it's the same foundational truth that he's trying to communicate. One to his disciples, in the second case, in Revelation, to the church. He's speaking to his people, and he's saying, this is, this is it. I'm looking for ongoing relationship with you, and the result of that ongoing relationship will be fruitfulness. If you're not seeing fruitfulness, let that be an indicator that maybe something has happened with the relationship. Relationships primary, foundational. The fruitfulness or the usefulness is what flows out of that naturally. Again, think of a tree in healthy soil. It's going to produce fruit. It's not hard. The trees don't sweat that. It's just what they do. And the same thing is true for us. We, we remain, we're connected, we recognize our ongoing need for Jesus, you will be useful, you will produce fruit. It's nothing for you to worry about or strive to feel like you've got to make happen. The Laodicean issue fundamentally was their wealth. They're a really rich city. In AD 60, their city was leveled by an earthquake. In Rome, so we'll call that the federal government, says to them, hey, we'll send you some money to rebuild. And they say, no, we don't need it. Charleston, Miami, New Orleans. Can you imagine any of those cities saying, hey, we don't need it? After they're leveled by a hurricane, we don't need it. That's where they were. That speaks both to their wealth and probably to their pride and their independence as well. They really were a wealthy city. That was a true statement, and it was an issue for them. Their wealth numbed them to their need for Jesus, and our wealth can do the same thing. I don't necessarily want to beat this to death, but I do want you to acknowledge and realize that we're all rich, both historically and globally. By any measure, we're all rich. We tend to, when it comes to wealth, we look up the ladder at people who are more well-off than us, and we call them rich. 
and we say we're just normal. We're middle class. When it comes to our morality, we tend to look down the ladder and say we're a whole lot better than those guys. It'd be better to flip that, wouldn't it? You look down the ladder when it comes to your wealth, and you look up the ladder when it comes to your behavior. But that's not what we tend to do. Median income in Marietta is about $51,000 a year. That puts you, if you make that, that's dead in the middle. Median is dead in the middle. It's a better uh, indicator of income than uh, average income for, a, for an area. Just as many people make less than that as make more than that. So if that's you, if you're dead in the middle, $51,000, you're in the top three-tenths of a percent in the world. You didn't realize that, did you? You're a one percenter. You're a, you are. If you're, in the me, if you're the median in Marietta, you can go, I know you want to, go ahead and type it in. You're not going to bother me. Global rich list, type in your income and you can see where you are. Minimum wage, brutal, $7.25 an hour. Terrible. But if that's what you make, 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, it's about 15 grand a year. As awful as that would be to try to live on that here in the U.S., still puts you in the top 8% globally. The people who, what we look around and think, they're the, they're, 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 they're working poor, and they are where we live, are still globally top 10%. We're rich. And I just say that because I want you to acknowledge it. Because if we don't acknowledge our wealth, then what it does to us is the same thing it does to the Laodiceans. None of us are saying, hey, I'm rich, I don't need anything. But we don't recognize what our wealth does to us. It, it insulates us from the fragility of our life. It numbs us to our ongoing need for Jesus because we can go to Kroger. I don't have to pray about my food. I don't have to pray about clothes. I can buy them. I don't have to, I don't have to pray about where I'm going to sleep tonight. I got a house. And all of those things are wonderful, and I want to give up any of them, but I need to acknowledge and recognize that the fact that I can write a check for every one of those basic necessities and even just about everything I want, I can write a check for all of that. What that does to me month after month, year after year, is it causes me to lose sight of my need for Jesus. Have you ever been in a place where you truly needed something, truly needed it, and you couldn't afford it? That's a different, that's a different spot. It's probably been a long time for most of you that you were in a spot where you truly needed something and you didn't have the money for it and you couldn't get the money for it. That prayer sounds a whole lot different than what we say when we sit down to eat, when we go to the deli after church. It sounds a whole lot different. There's a reason it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God and there's multiple reasons for that. And one of the reasons is it's hard for the rich to, to acknowledge and be in touch with their own need. They're not used to needing anything, and they are us. <laughs> We're not necessarily aware of our ongoing need physically, and that can cause us to lose sight of our ongoing need spiritually. And in time, that leads us to lukewarmness because we're, it's, it's like the picture of the guy who's standing on the branch sawing it off from the tree. We look at that and we think, man, that's ridiculous, and we do it all the time. By our own lack of acknowledgement of our ongoing need for Jesus. We don't live relationally dependent upon them. That's us sawing off the branch that connects us to the vine. And that connection is what leads to fruitfulness. It's what keeps us hot and cold, keeps us from being lukewarm. 
So what is it that causes you to lose sight of your dependence upon Jesus? It's interesting to me, the Laodiceans, for them to say, we're rich, we don't need anything. What was one of the things we said at the beginning? What did they not have? They didn't have any water. How important is that to live? Top three, right? Air, water, food. They don't have any water, but they don't need anything. You would think every time they took a drink of their sorry water, every time they cooked something, every time they washed something, it would remind them, we don't have everything we need. We got to pipe in water from six miles away. And by the time it gets to us, it's lukewarm and it's full of dirt. And for, they can't, their, their wealth blinds them. The irony of that. What is it that, that blinds you to your ongoing need? It could be your wealth, and a part of that is comfort. We don't feel it. We don't feel it. We don't feel our needs physically, and that, again, can cause us to be numb to our spiritual need. Competence. The first 20-something years of our life, we are training to be independent and self-sufficient, and then we hear Jesus say, become like a little child. What? We're trying to not be like little children. We're trying to act like adults. And then you're telling us to be like a child. And we think, well, maybe only in this one little sliver of my heart that is my relationship with God, but in all these other areas, it's self-sufficiency and independence because that's what I've gone to school for and that's what I've been trained for and that's what my parents have taught me. And every message I get is that's what it means to be an adult. And so, okay, be like a little child. And we kind of box that off in this one little corner of our heart. Our competence can cause us to lose sight of our ongoing need for Jesus. And for some of us, it's, it's our theology. We're functional deists. God created the world, and now he's off messing with Jupiter or something. He's not doing anything with us anymore. Or he saved us, and he'll come back at some time and check on us and see how we're doing. But in general, he's just said, figure it out. You can handle it. Jesus says, I want to come in and eat with you, and I want you to eat with me. And we're kind of going, how long does lunch last? I got stuff to do. And he's talking about ongoing relationship with us. We think, I, I got this. Think about your prayer life. Prayer is not telling God things he doesn't know. It's inviting him to get involved. Where are you not inviting him to get involved? Then by default, you're handling those things on your own whether it's conscious or unconscious, if you're not inviting him to get involved, then what you're saying is, I've got this. I don't need you. And doing that week after week, month after month, year after year, that saw in the branch that's connecting you to the vine. You're not acknowledging, I'm not acknowledging my ongoing need for him. And part of it is recognizing I don't feel it because I can write a check. I can Google it. I can figure it out. And it's not to throw away any of those things. It's just to acknowledge what those things do to my heart and what they can do to my relationship with Jesus over time. And so I want to ask you as you close your eyes, we're going to, just, we're going to be done. I want to make sure we have enough time for communion. So y'all close your eyes if you would. One brief word of instruction. You'll come forward a row at a time to take communion. You'll break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. In this glute, there'll be gluten-free communion. I'll stay up here on this table if you need that. I want to ask you this question.
And you ask the Holy Spirit to search you and know you. Where am I living independent of you, Jesus? Where am I sawing the branch off, the tree? What is it in my life that causes me, over time, subconsciously, unconsciously, unintentionally, what is causing me to lose sight of the reality? I'm not rich. I'm actually wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. And what I need, only you can provide. Jesus, none of us want to be spit out of your mouth. None of us do. Would you show us the the places in our life where we're moving towards lukewarmness, a lack of usefulness to you, and then would you peel that back a layer so that we can see what's the heart issue for us? Where are we losing connection with you? What is it in our life that's causing us to believe the lie, that we got it, that we can handle it? Something comes to your mind, just agree with God. Remember, he's the amen. He's the faithful and true witness. So agree with him. That's what repentance looks like. God, I confess, I'm doing that. I don't live aware of my need. I'm insulated and isolated. And it's easy for me to forget that you're the source of life for me. Not just spiritual life. You're the source of all good things. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. Every single one of them. You sustain the whole work the whole world. You do, not me. In you, all things hold together. Would you remind me of that? And I pray that you would help me, that you would help us, Jesus, to tend to that, to tend to relationship with you first, to maintain that attitude of childlikeness, ongoing dependence. And as we remain connected, I pray without sweating, without striving, it's the work of your spirit in us and through us, fruit would be produced. I pray for any who are nervous about their spiritual condition today. Holy Spirit, would you bring assurance? For those who are already yours, would you assure them of your love? that nothing can separate them from the love that you have for them, Father, in Jesus. And for those who have not yet turned towards you, we pray today would be the day that they would do so. We're thankful for communion and that is a tangible reminder of our need and of your sufficiency. And God, I pray as we come forward that we would do so in faith, acknowledging, again, our ongoing need for you and a desire for you to produce fruit through us. We're going to have ministry teams here up in the corners and we'll pray with you about anything that you have going on. God stirred something in your heart and we'll make sure that we give you an opportunity to
to bring that before him. And we want to pray specifically for people who are sick. We do that every time we take communion. One of the benefits of the cross is that Jesus forgives us of all of our sins and he heals us of all of our diseases. In receiving prayer, again, it's inviting God to get involved. He, well, he already knows I'm sick, absolutely. Invite him to get involved. I've done that before. It didn't work. We'll do it again. Do it again. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. I know that can be difficult if you have a chronic condition. I want to encourage you just as a sign of dependence, of ongoing need. If you have a, we'll pray, whatever in terms of sickness, but specifically to those of you with chronic conditions. Don't walk by. Just stop. Receive prayer. You don't have to have faith. The people who are praying for you do. It's like the guys lowering their friend in front of Jesus. He couldn't walk. They got him there. That's what these prayer teams will do. They'll get you there. Then we'll just trust Jesus to take care of it. Father, my prayer, particularly for those with chronic conditions, is that you would heal them today. Healing's a mystery to us, but we know it's a sign of your kingdom coming. We know that you overcame sickness and death on the cross, Jesus, and we want to experience that as fully as we can this side of your return. So not because we say the magic words or muster up whatever a mustard seed worth of faith is, but out of your goodness and your grace, I pray that you would touch bodies today. I pray that you would surprise us. Surprise us with your work. In Jesus' name.